Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking at 13 to 17, but I'm actually going to read from 9 to 17, just so we can kind of keep in our head, just like the broader, broader context that Peter's writing here. So 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, but you, that's you, if you're in Christ, that's you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. For what? For what's the purpose here? That you may proclaim, declare, share the excellencies of him. How amazing he is. The one who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Once we were not God's people. But now we are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice that it's receiving mercy is what makes you God's people. Not because we perform at a certain spiritual level. It's his mercy makes us his people. Verse 11, beloved, since that's true, because you've received mercy, because I've made you a people of mine, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles in a strange land to abstain from the passions of your flesh, that thing that wages war against your soul in you, that thing that you hate, that thing that makes you feel like a schizophrenic, but it's just the Holy Spirit. Waging war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they slander you, they may see your good deeds. And maybe by seeing your good deeds, maybe by seeing what God's doing in your life, they may stop slandering you. And maybe some of them might be moved to glorify God on the day that Christ returns. Maybe God might save some by the way we act and live. Verse 13. Be subject For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. 16 is what we're really going to hone in on. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. God, we just give ourselves today. We recognize that at best, I'm a secondary teacher here. Your word is being proclaimed. Your spirit is here. Um, Move us, teach us, um, show us um, in our lives um, what we ought to do as a result of this teaching. Uh, maybe where we need to confess and rely on you to change our hearts in some things. God, have your way among us and uh, communicate to us. And may our hearts be filled and changed by your grace. Amen. So we're going to be looking at 13 to 17, but I wanted to read from 9 on down just so we can track with the context here. Like, why is Peter saying what he's saying? And the context here really is a missional one for Peter. And way back in verse 9, Peter began to share his heart to see people come to know Jesus. He began to share his heart, on God's heart, really, for people that, to come to know Jesus and be worshipers of Jesus. And in our passage the last weekend, right, um, it was verse 12. And, and Peter kind of really kind of continues this same thought here in verse 13. But it kind of started last week in verse 12 when it said this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That word there is nations, right? All peoples. Keep your conduct among the nations, people, people groups, tribes of people, different circles of friends, 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, uh, they may see your good deeds, and, and those good deeds might make them kind of start to rethink this Jesus. And maybe as they rethink Jesus, and maybe as they hear the good news of the gospel, some, by watching the gospel transform your life, may stop their mouths and slandering you, and maybe with that same mouth glorify God right next to you on the day when Jesus returns. That's what Peter's saying there. Now, Peter's words there are almost identical to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, right? Like, Peter's not just pulling this stuff out of nowhere. He spent three years with Christ, and he's just kind of like contextualizing these words for his friends, for the people he's writing to. Now, look at what Jesus said, almost identical to 1 Peter 2.12. Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world, right? Light is to just like turn the light on, on who God is. Like, turn the light on, like, expose and open up people's eyes to see what this is, what this grace is, and what this grace does in someone's life. It's almost like a city set on a hill, right? And just like a city set on a hill can't be hidden, and just like people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand so it gives light to the whole house, in the same way, let your light, let the transformational nature of God's good news that he has sent his son for sinners and rebels... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your good deeds, and they might give glory to your father who's in heaven. It's almost like Peter, like I said, is is taking Jesus' words and he's kind of just just spinning them in a way that is just very, very fitting and contextual for his readers. And Peter's saying your transformed heart and lives, right, with good deeds and, and good works, Your transformed hearts and lives have everything to do with what God's doing in this world. It has everything to do with the mission that God is on in this world. To spread the gospel and the glory of God all over this planet. And your lives, your conduct, actually where you live, work, and play, and, and some of those things that we seem to be mundane and menial, those have everything to do with the spread of the gospel and the glory of God where you are. And Peter keeps giving these discouraged, misplaced exiles reasons to be encouraged while in exile. And in verse 9, all the way to what we're talking about now, he's given them purpose, right? He encouraged them in the first couple of chapters, just encouraging their hearts in Christ with where they're at. But now he encourages them with purpose. Like gives them like, man, I'm going to show you guys like how you live your lives and your time on this planet. I guess it's moving somewhere. God's doing something through you. He's giving them purpose in their good deeds that flow out of good news embraced. Good deeds flow out of good news. And of course, this type of missional, honorable conduct, this flows from a new identity. And so we talk about this a lot around here. It's not like, oh, here you become a Christian, so here's the uniform and here's the rules, right? Here's the uniform and here's the rules. No, we see that God has done something amazing on our behalf. And he's changed us inwardly at the heart level. And he has made us a people. He has given us a new identity. Identity is like things like how we describe ourselves. So how do you describe yourself on your Facebook page or your Twitter page? And we normally like define ourselves by what we do, how much we make, how many kids we have, these kinds of things. But God gives us identities. God gives us really labels, right? And really defines who we are. Do we get to define who we are or does God define who we are? Our creator defines who we are. And since we've been recreated in his image by embracing Christ, he has given us new identities. 
right? And these new identities were given to us by God. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we were not, had not received mercy, and now we have received mercy. And so Peter's been giving us gospel identities. He's been giving us things that God has declared that are true of us. And then he's been telling us to live lives that are consistent with those new identities. Do you remember what those identities were? Verse 9. Chosen race, holy nation, royal priesthood. And you're like, man, this is some weighted Old Testament terms, but really they're pretty simple to understand. And we just read this, right? You're a chosen race. I've chosen you, right? I've chosen to bring my love to you. I've chosen to love you and send my son, right? This is not by accident that you stumbled into this family. I've loved you specifically and individually. You're a chosen race. You're also a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Holy nation is this idea of set apart, holy, distinct. And you remember in chapter one, right? And early in chapter two, what was the main key distinction when Peter called us to live holy lives? Was it, I don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do? No, it was what? Brotherly love. That we love the brothers, that we have a relational love for those who are also in Christ. And all around us is strife and unreconciliation. And one of these key distinctions for us is to live in relational harmony and peace with those that we live around who claim the name of Christ as well. But we're called to be a holy nation, distinct, set apart. We have a different approach to life than those who don't know God. In and among God's people, Jesus is king. I remember before I came into God's kingdom as a part of God's people, you know who was king in my life? Myself. I live for the glory of self. And I did whatever I wanted to. And I didn't want anyone in coming in and just messing with my vibe. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't give me rules. Don't give me anything to do. I'm just going to be my own sovereign king. And I'm going to live life on my own terms. Right? But we see in and among God's people, Jesus is king. And we increasingly, after we've embraced his mercy, after we've embraced his grace, we increasingly grow to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. See, before I used to hate the things that God loves and I used to love the things that God hates, but he's made me a new person. He's made me a a people of his. I'm a part of this. So we're a holy nation. We're set apart. We're distinct. We live, we have different values. We live for different things. We approach life a little bit differently, not because we're awesome, but because God's done a great work in our lives. And also we're a royal priesthood. So some people treat holy nation like this. Oh, I need to be separate and distinct and I need to not be hanging out with these people because their values aren't my values and they love different things and they might taint me and bad morals corrupts, you know, uh, good morals and all that like good wisdom type stuff. So I need to just kind of stay away and I need to just be around people who look like me, think like me, dress like me and behave like me. And because I'm a holy nation, I need to be set apart from that. Ah, not so fast. Royal priesthood. We're a holy nation and we're a royal priesthood. Prophets back in the day, they used to come on behalf of God and speak a word of truth to the people. Priests used to come on behalf of the people and represent them to God. You know who priests are? The people who love other people. The people who have a heart for and love those around them. They represent the people. They have a heart for the people. They're in and for the people. They have a missional heart for the lost, those who are far from God. They find themselves loving those who used to be like them, least, last, lost, little, and dead, far from God. They have a heart for them to come to know God's grace. So priests in the Old Testament, they sought to make God known to the nations, which is actually that word Gentiles translated. They sought to make known to the nations God and to find their atonement for sin through sacrifice. We're talking temple stuff. But now we have a different type of sacrifice. 
We don't sacrifice that of bulls, goats, and lambs. We have a great high priest who came in the name of Jesus. And he didn't just offer up a sacrifice, but offered up himself. And so we now, as a kingdom of priests, know how people can know God. And know how people can have the love of God and the favor of God and the grace of God. And it's in and through Jesus Christ. So we're a holy nation. We live distinct lives. There's something different about us. But it doesn't lead us so far to just kind of like walk away from people. No, we're called to be a royal priesthood. We're called to be in relationship with people. And so it's it's the age old tension and hard thing where Jesus said, I want you to be not of the world, but I want you to be in the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. So distinct, set apart, but in and for. And Peter actually says on the heels of telling them that they are both distinct and set apart from the world, but loving and relationally among the people of the world, that as you live out this new life you have in Jesus, this will point to the good news and it will open doors for gospel sharing. And God will save people through his gospel by the way you live out your new life in Christ. That's what Peter's saying. And when we come to verse 13, he's applying it in a very specific way. These folks will come to glorify God on the day when Jesus returns. So here's a person who's who's slandering you, speaking evil about you, and speaking evil about the one whom you serve and one whom you love. And um, that exists. That's going to happen. But by the way we live our lives, and we're going to see in 13, by the way we serve and love them, they might just shut their mouths about you saying bad things and saying bad things about Christ. By the way you live your life, it might prick their understanding and say, maybe there's something to this. It might open up a door for a conversation. And maybe previously where their mouths were slandering, they might, standing right next to you with that same mouth, give glory and worship to God on the day Jesus returns. Peter's saying that some might come to know him. We need to recognize a couple things. Good deeds don't preach the gospel. Your good deeds don't save anybody. Right? They don't save anybody. Good deeds don't preach the gospel. Don't confuse good deeds with good news, right? Good news is that Jesus came to die. That, that does something in our lives. So good news don't preach the gospel, but they point to the gospel. Good deeds are not the gospel, but they speak to the transformational power of the gospel in our lives. Our inconsistent yet transformed lives. Anybody want to amen that? Are inconsistent, but yet transform lives. Anybody up and down? Anybody like, anybody like borderline schizophrenic as a believer in Christ? Right? But sometimes I find myself, in my heart, I want to do a particular thing. I want to love God, but I find myself doing the thing that I actually hate and the thing that God hates. And sometimes I want to do, I want to avoid doing the thing that God has called me to avoid, and I end up doing that, that thing. Or I want to do a thing that God's called me to, and I end up neglecting that. Right? Um, a lot of you guys know Joey, right? Joey preached here Good Friday, and we love Joey at the Cedar Lake campus. I was talking to him a little bit earlier on this week. He goes, he goes, either I'm schizophrenic or the Holy Spirit is real. And I resonate with that. Why? Because like I feel like I'm just like a little, I'm a beautiful mess, right? I feel like my life is just kind of it's real inconsistent. Like I see the fruit of God's grace, but I also see that 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 flesh that wages war against my soul that rears its head too, right? And yet God still loves us in his grace. And yet God still loves us consistently. And his grace continues to grow us and shape us and change us in our lives or our conduct. As Peter says here, his grace is doing something in our hearts. But we are inconsistent, beautiful messes. 
So now Peter continues the same thought of blending holy living and mission and introduces a new gospel identity to us and then applies it very specifically. You guys ready for this new gospel identity? Royal priesthood, holy nation. Here's a new one. Servant. Servant. Holy nation, distinct, set apart. Our heart loves another person and lives for another person. And this world doesn't know him yet. And we're also a royal priesthood. We love people. And in these two things, we're called to be a servant. And Peter tells us that since we are free, since we're free in the grace of God, we should be servants. That's weird. Check it out. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is God's will. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's Bible talk for making them shut up, right? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Okay, so this passage is going to offend some of you. Okay, I'm just going to let you know. So feel free to send the email. I may or may not read it. Um, But somebody's going to get offended in here. Just disclaimer, okay? Just to let you know. So here in America, we love freedom, right? We celebrate freedom and rightfully so. Like, I love living in America. Like, I love the fact that we get to celebrate our independence by not having to go to work, overeating, playing beanbags, and blowing stuff up. Like, that's awesome, right? I get to eat two brats, a steak, and a hamburger, and I get to throw beanbags and set stuff on fire and watch it go boom. Like, that's cool, okay? But the freedom that Peter talks about is not American freedom, Nor is it the freedom that most people interpret as freedom. And here's kind of like the spirit of the day, how we see freedom. We we believe that freedom is freedom to live for self. Freedom to kind of just kind of live my life how I want on my own terms. I'm free from your rules. I'm free from having to do these things. I'm free to live my life how I want. I'm free to live the gospel according to YOLO. You only live once, so live it up, right? That's how we interpret freedom. The kind of the freedom that Peter talks about here is not that kind of freedom. It's not how we interpret freedom here in your classic pop song on B96, right? We don't interpret freedom like that, like freedom to drive around in a car with the top down all day and just party all day and all night. The kind of freedom that Peter talks about here is the freedom that God provides to us in the gospel. The freedom that that God provides to us in Christ Freedom from the bondage of sin. Freedom from the ignorance of heart and the blindness to God's grace. That once I was held captive in my blindness and my ignorance that a God existed and he loved me in Christ. I used to be blind and ignorant to that and I used to live life on my own terms. I used to be blind to the fact that God is a king of a kingdom and he loves rebel sinners and he sent his son to die to prove it. And he's welcoming people in freely by his grace to his family and to his table to have fellowship with him. I used to be blind to that. I used to be ignorant of that. Freedom in God's grace. Freedom in that I'm awakened now. Freedom from shame and guilt to my past. Freedom from all the consequences of my sin. Freedom from having to deal with the wrath of God by myself. Jesus dealt with and took on himself the consequences of my sin and the wrath of God for me. So don't interpret this as American freedom, which I love, but actually sometimes fights against what Peter is talking about here. See, we need to make sure that much of what we love by being citizens of America doesn't trump our calling as citizens of God's kingdom. We need to be really, really careful 
that what we love about being citizens of this nation that we live in doesn't trump our calling as citizens of God's people and his nation. American national freedom, please hear me, has us all worried about our rights and our privileges. American and national freedom has us all worried about what our rights are and what our privileges are. See, we're all about religious freedom and protecting our religious rights. But we need to see that the people that Peter writes to, they don't have religious rights. They don't have religious freedoms. And please notice that he doesn't tell them to fight for those things. See, the people that Peter's talking about are not a privileged people at the center of culture. There are persecuted people at the margins of culture. He doesn't write to those who have freedoms or rights. And he actually tells them to die to themselves and to take their newfound freedom in Jesus and to use it to serve, honor, and do good to evil people. To evil people like Nero, who was the emperor of the day. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Nero. Because remember, see in verse 17 where it says, honor the emperor? We're talking about Nero. Let me tell you a little bit about Nero. If you got everyone together who has hated Christians and persecuted them over the years, right, and you had a contest, Nero would win hands down, right? Like, and the gold medal to worst person ever to Christians goes to, drum roll, Nero. Like, no clapping, right? Like, this dude was just straight up wicked. We can go on and on and on. And actually, even as I studied and researched Nero, some of which is very embellished, but some of it is very true. He burned Christians alive. He crucified them. Just to give you an example, for, um, for entertainment, what he would do is he would sew Christians into animal skins. And he would parade them through the streets so that the people could jeer them and mock them for their own entertainment. He would take dead animal skins of live wild animals. He would sew the Christians into the skins and parade them around through the streets so they can throw things at them and jeer them and mock them for their entertainment. That's pretty sick. That's pretty disgusting. So what we see here, right, is the guy that Peter is going to tell us and tell these folks to be subject to and to do good to and to honor is Nero. Honor the emperor. Honor the guy that stuck your brother on Christ on a pole outside of his house, set him on fire so it can light the pathway to the front door of his palace. Honor, do good, and serve and love that guy. Okay, this is what we're talking about, right? See where it says every human institution? Those were the guys that shipped these exiles to this foreign place without asking. If you guys are here and you're new, just know Peter writes to people who were part of a political tactic by the Roman army, the Roman nation, to assimilate an area that they had just conquered. And what they would do is they would take people who are familiar with Greco-Roman culture, ship them over to a new place that needed to be assimilated to Greco-Roman culture. They wouldn't even ask them. They would just send them over there. And part of which were Peter's friends. They were Christians. That's why he writes to them. Every human institution. These were the guys that said, you're coming with us. Pack your stuff. You're going to this new place. Honor the emperor. Be subject to every human institution. And we get upset when we're asked to do a little bit above and beyond when we're at work. You know, what's crazy is that the institutions and people that Peter is describing here are some of the most ungodly, evil, and most oppressive people this world has ever seen. This is not easy. This is hard. 
Peter actually says to these marginalized believers, I want you to take your newfound freedom in Jesus and I want you to use it to serve and honor and do good to the people around you. Even governmental leaders that are straight up pagan hate you and kill your brothers and sisters. And we see here that every human institution is implied here. And this flies, Peter's words fly right in the face of American Christians who are more concerned about their religious rights than they are about their gospel identity as servants. This flies right in the face of American Christianity that's more about our privileges and our rights and protecting them than they are about their gospel obligation to serve their neighbors and their enemies. You know, I wonder what Peter would say to the Christian-owned bakery that was asked to make a cake for Nero's wedding. You know what he would say? You make the best cake you ever made in your life, and you deliver it right to his doorstep with a smile on your face, praying for him the whole way. I wonder what Peter would say in response to all the political rants on our Facebook pages. I wonder what Peter would say to our secluded communities that hide the light of the gospel under the basket of our small group gatherings. See, for a lot of us, we've placed our rights and our comforts and our beliefs before our call to serve those who are different than us, who believe differently than us, who behave differently than us, and who even hate us. And see, Peter's not just pulling this out of nowhere. This comes from somewhere, right? He's not just pulling this identity as servants out of nowhere. In fact, the whole entire person that gives shape and entrance to this community is one that was a suffering servant. And just a few verses later, Peter's going to give us this description of Jesus, which says this, For to this you have been called, a life of servanthood, a life of love. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He gave us an example of suffering and dying, serving, He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What was going on in the psyche of Jesus as he's being wrongfully accused, flogged, beaten, scourged, crucified, mocked and jeered by the crowds? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He submitted himself to a larger plan of God followed God's will and God's plan and said, God, you're a judge and one day you're going to take care of this and set what's wrong right and clarify this whole moment. I'm going to shut my mouth and I'm going to subject myself to you and entrust myself to him who judges justly. And let's not forget that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed. Here we see where we get our identity as servants. Our king served us. And you need to recognize that before you were a child of God, you were an enemy of God. See, some of us have been Christians for a long time and we've gotten into this lie that we're the good guys, right? And they're the bad guys. No. Before you were a child, you were an enemy. And the only thing that makes you a child, the only thing that makes you a people going back to verse 10 of chapter 2 is once you were a person who had not received mercy and now you have received mercy, 
What makes you a people of God? What makes you a child of His? Your morality? Your spirituality? The only thing that identifies us as people of God is ones who have been the objects of God's mercy. That's what makes you a child of His. In fact, if you try to gain entrance into this family by being a good person, you're going to get rejected and spit out. Because God doesn't love self-righteousness. He loves the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you by faith. The only way you gain entrance into this family is by mercy. And we see that the king of the kingdom died and loved rebel sinners. I, for one, am really glad that Jesus, instead of opposing me and keeping himself from me, became sin for me. And I'm really glad that Jesus went to those on the outside so that we could be brought near. Because that's where I was. I was on the outside. And he came to the lost sheep. He came to the lost coin. And he loved the prodigal as well as the older son who thought he was loved by God because he was obeying all the rules. And Jesus went to the outside, to outsiders to be brought near instead of opposing us and keeping himself from us. Like Jesus, we are servants. Why? Because your grand entrance into the family of God came by knowing Jesus, not as life coach or moralistic cheerleader, but as a servant who served me in my sin. That's the only way you know Jesus. If you know Jesus any other way, as a savior who loved you in a desperate, pathetic, sinful situation and showed grace to you and love to you while you were unlovely, then you're worshiping somebody else and it's not the Jesus of the Bible. I love the example in the Gospels. Jesus is right before his sufferings and he comes and, and he begins to wash the feet of all his disciples and he comes to Peter and I'm like kind of, I'm Peter, the Peter who's writing here and I'm like him, I'm just like, you know, just blurting out dumb stuff and just putting my foot in my mouth constantly and doing the proverbial lop of soldier's ear off and just like, just making a mess of things. And Peter's like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to wash my feet. I'm supposed to wash your feet. You're greater than I am. I wash your feet. And Jesus looks at Peter and goes, dude, like, listen, man, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. If you don't know me on the basis of anything other than I serve you, then you don't know me. And that is the only way we know God is through a son who serves us. And so if your Jesus has given you the good old pat on the back on your way to being a better person, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And you are seriously overestimating who you are. A couple questions for us to consider. As a people of God's possession who have been purchased out of slavery to sin, given a newfound freedom in Jesus, called to be distinct in the world, yet loving those in the world as servants like Jesus, how does this change the way you view the people around you? How does this change the way that you view the people that you live by, work with, those that you know, and maybe even some of the people that you avoid? When was the last time you served someone that you disagree with? When was the last time you served someone that isn't like you? When was the last time that you loved someone that is making lifestyle choices that you disagree with? 
See, I would say this, that burning people alive, that's kind of a bad lifestyle choice. You're not going to want to do that in your life, right? Right? Crucifying people, it's kind of a bad choice in life. Like, I don't suggest anybody do that. And yet Peter's telling these believers to honor that man, to love that man, serve that man. It's asked us this, what would change in our lives if we began to see the world through this lens? What would change in our lives if we began to see the world and the people around us through the lens of servant, through the lens of Jesus? Not the Jesus that opposes them, but the Jesus that dies for them, loves them. Whose house would you find yourself at? Who would you end up hanging out with? What would you be doing while you were there? Let me ask us this. As you're hearing this, what are the roadblocks in your heart that's keeping you from this? Like, if you're mad at me right now, and you're mad at this passage, or at least the way I'm teaching it, why? Why? Why is this rubbing you the wrong way? And further, Peter says, don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Don't use the label as free in the grace of God as a covering for evil. What's evil as defined by this passage? It's doing the opposite of serving and doing good. It's making excuses for why I get to throw a stone and be a jerk to this guy. That's using your freedom as a covering for evil. Evil here in this context is rebelling, slandering, opposing. Notice here, verse 15, what God wants to do in all this. is He wants to shut the mouths of some people. And us being servants plays a part in this. He wants to shut some people up. And on the way, he wants to save some people. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice how it doesn't say God's will is to shut people up by you telling them to shut up. (laughs) Right? For this is the will of God, that by telling people to shut up, they'll shut up. How well does that work in your marriage? Right? It doesn't. It doesn't work out in any human relationship. That by doing good and being a servant, you will put to silence ignorant and foolish people. We even saw that earlier that some, after seeing your good deeds, might even become Christians and start to use their mouths not to slander you, but to worship God. They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day when Christ returns. So God wants to shut some people up, but he also wants to save some in the process. Let me ask you, Christian. Does the way you conduct yourself shut the mouths of ignorant and foolish people, or does it fuel them? The way you act, does, does it shut their slander up and lead to relational conversations? Does it cause them to stop their mouths and to start thinking like, man, like, this is a little bit different than I thought that a follower of Jesus was like. Hey, man, what's your name? Can I ask you a few questions? You go from two opposite ends of the spectrum where you're just throwing stones at each other to coming, their mouths are silent, you're being a servant, and you meet at a table to have a conversation. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about culture wars here. We're talking about loving and serving people like Jesus. See, we have traded doing good and serving others like Jesus for letting others loudly know where we stand. We have traded in being servants and loving those who aren't like us for loudly letting other people know where we stand. And Peter is telling us to be servants. In our shouting matches and blog wars, 
we have actually added fuel to the fire for ignorant and foolish people. Doing good to them is what silences the nonsense and saves some in the process. And since we've traded in doing good and being servants for being loud and obnoxious, and doing so we have short-circuited God's process for shutting up some and saving others. So I want us to take all of our quippy evangelical bumper stickers, okay? And you think that you're doing the work of God by having some dumb little bumper sticker on the back of your truck. You're not, according to this passage. I want you to take all your quippy little evangelical bumper stickers and let people know where you stand. And all the times that the like button has been clicked on some Christian rant on social media, I want you to compile them all up into one little thing. And you wouldn't even touch the effect that a single act of serving your enemy and doing good to them would have. So take off your dumb bumper sticker. I will help you. And be a servant like Jesus. Because letting people know where you stand does nothing. We need less social commentators and more servants in Chicago lands, nooks, and crannies. We need less cultural warriors and more cultural servants and missionaries where we live, work, and play. So really, really quick, serve. How do we serve, right? So if you're like, okay, Tony, like, I'm partly like really mad at you right now, and I'm working up an email in my head to send you, but I'm part like convicted, and I want to live this out. How do we do this? The answer, Jesus. He is the model, the means, and motivation for us to serve. He is the model, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, the one who deserved all the worship and adoration and service of the world, the one who could have rolled out the proverbial red carpet and announced his coming, I'm here, bow down and worship me, had humble beginnings in a barn and grew up a peasant carpenter in some backwoods town and came to live and die as a servant came to serve not to be served he's the model so we look at that and we look at jesus and we're like that's amazing he's also the means by which we serve i'm not telling you to muster this up jesus said listen i need to go i need to leave and the disciples are like don't leave he goes if i don't leave i can't send the holy spirit the spirit of christ the spirit of christ that indwells every one of us in here that claims the name of jesus it is the spirit of jesus empowering us to live the life of Jesus through our hearts and through our carcasses. And it's him, it's the spirit, as we look at Christ as a model and as we see the motivation in Christ, the spirit begins to prick our hearts and give us the heart of Jesus and begins to bear fruit in our lives. And then in obedience, we walk in it. We walk in his fruit. His spirit indwelling us to grant us the power to do this. His spirit showing us Christ, showing us the model of servanthood and is motivating us. Jesus is the motivation. And here's how this works. You consider how he served you. You think the cross of Jesus is for that guy at your job and you forget that it's for you right now. I should say we because I fail often in this we consider how he served us and we let it stir our affections for those who might be hard to love 
and maybe for those who aren't like us. We let it stir our affection to give us the heart of Jesus for those who are hard to love like Nero. And for those who aren't like us, like homosexuals. Instead of having a heart of disdain, we could actually rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the heart of Jesus. In closing, verse 17. Stephen, you can come up, man. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. No asterisks. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love your brother and your sister in Christ. I don't care what your problem is or what's keeping between you guys from being reconciled. I don't care what it is about their opinion or what that has you guys fighting back and forth. Get over it. Cling to the reconciliation provided in the cross. Love your brother and your sister in Christ. Fear God. We looked at what fear God meant, right? It's not fear like I'm afraid to go to God, but it's a fear that he is more powerful than anything in this world. And we don't fear the sword of Rome or the opinions of our friends, but we fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. And it causes us to run to him and worship. That's the kind of fear we're talking about there. And honor the emperor. And honor and love those who are evil and serve them. God, give us the heart of Jesus. Help us to put down our arguments. Help us to put down our fight. And help us to just shut our mouths like Jesus who on the cross, when he was reviled, didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten or say, just you guys wait, I'm going to get you back. He didn't utter any of those words. And he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Give us the heart of Jesus. And may we leave this place and pray that prayer. May we say, God, I don't love people like you. And that's might where it may to start for some of us. I don't love people like you do. Give me the heart of Jesus for those around me. Give me the courage to go in places that might make me uncomfortable, that might rub me the wrong way, and just love and be a servant. And just watch God open up doors for table fellowship and conversations where we get to share about a suffering servant who came and died for you and for me. And we can just watch what you do because it's not about us, it's about you. It's your mercy given to people. Help us to walk in it. Grant it to us. Amen.